0: There was a fishing company in the 1980s that wanted to expand their codfish market beyond the east coast of the United States where they were located. The west coast became their target market. They first tried shipping the cod live in saltwater tanks. But when they arrived, the fish were mushy and soft. They, they tried shipping the cod in large freezers But when they arrived, the fish had lost their flavor by the time they arrived. Then an employee of the company came up with a bright idea. Into the shipping tank with the live codfish, they inserted the natural enemy of the cod, the catfish. During the transcontinental journey, the codfish swam full time trying to escape the catfish. And they arrived on the West Coast fresh, strong, and meaty in better shape than when they left. Today, of course, we use air freight, but then it worked. We as people, kind of like fish, like to be comfortable. But God wants us to be strong. So in his love, God places each of us in a tank with a God-appointed catfish to keep us alive, fresh, and growing. Don't look at your husband or wife or or roommate. (laughs) I'm speaking of challenges in our life brought by circumstances or people. Opposition designed not to make us miserable, but to make us stronger. The same principle we experience as individuals, we experience as a church and as a a people of God. As a corporate entity, a community of believers. We experience challenges and opposition. Not to harass us, though we may feel harassed from time to time, but to make us stronger. We continue in our series of Acts today, which is the story of the beginning of the church. Remember, we're still in that story. That was the beginning of the church. One aspect that the followers of Jesus experienced on a daily basis was opposition. In their tank was the enemy, a, a catfish designed to make them strong. But before we get into the specifics of opposition, I want to begin with a description of the first church. Today, what kind, what kind of church are we looking at? And how can we identify with that first church? I want to answer four basic questions about the church. What was it like then? And what should it be like today? What kind of church, what kind of life, what kind of price, and what was the response? And then ask, What can we learn? We're going to look at Acts 5 today, fifth chapter of Acts. If you want to find it in the Bible in the rack in front of you, it's on page 886. We're going to take bits and pieces of chapter 5. In a narrative, uh, this is a narrative, so we're going to just kind of go through this narrative a little at a time and see what we can learn from the narrative. Acts 5, starting with verse 12. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared to join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets, laid them on the beds and mats, so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. What kind of church? What kind of church? What what was it that they were experiencing in the book of Acts? And by asking what kind of church do we have here in Acts, we could ask what kind of church are we to be? What are we to be? What elements should be present in our church since we are a continuation of the Church of Acts? We're still in it. First of all, there's a supernatural, supernatural literary, supernatural. It says the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the, the people. The supernatural was part of the early church. These were things that could not be mathematically quantified or scientifically explained. God was at work and it was obviously beyond the human control or power. And two questions I want us to keep in our mind. when We talk about the supernatural. What is happening in our church? What is happening in our church or in our life that can be explained only by the presence of the Holy Spirit? What, What can be explained only by the presence of God's Holy Spirit? And then what are we attempting that can only be done By the power of the Holy Spirit. What are some things that we should be attempting? It can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Is there anything that sets the church apart from human institutions and organizations? Most of us here either worked or worked in hospitals, schools, technology, service industries, a lot of different occupations. Is there anything that makes Eau Claire Wesleyan Church, or the church in particular, any different than your company? or where you worked, your place of employment. The only distinctive difference is the presence and power of God by the Holy Spirit. Now, the supernatural, Now, I trust the supernatural is happening where you work too, since you are the church scattered and dispersed during the week. And so the Holy Spirit ought to be working where you work as well. So the supernatural, are we expecting, and we have an expectancy of God doing supernatural things. What kind of church? Secondly, it was a worshiping church. It said all believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. Solomon's colonnade was part of the temple, an outer court that ran along the east side of the temple. And that's where they met for corporate large group worship. That was character, that was a character quality of what they did, worship. What did they do in worship? They practiced the biblical expressions of worship that they found in the Old Testament, which was their scriptures of the day. They would sing, clap hands, raise hands. They would shout. They would dance. They would make a joyful noise. They'd play skillfully on instruments like drums, cymbals, trumpets, stringed instruments. These were the musical instruments of their day. Worship to God, and God was the focus God was a focus. And we also are worshiping people. Now, our whole life is to be a worship to God. But in a corporate sense, we come together to sing, to clap hands, to raise hands, dance. I know that's a challenge for Norwegians and Germans, but <laughs> dance too. Make a joyful noise and praise God. Worshiping God, declaring his works in his person. When I talk, when we start the service, say, we are here and we are welcoming God into this place. We are here to focus on God, corporately, rejoicing in awe. That's what we're called to do in a large group setting each Sunday. The focus is not fellowship, although we do provide coffee and goodies to, when you come in, it makes everybody happier so when they get in here, everybody's contented, coffee and caffeine up and see, we can worship and focus on God. The focus, however, is not fellowship, it's God. So, worship. Thirdly, it's community. Here we get to community. Verse 2, 46 says, They broke bread in their homes and ate together day after day in the temple courts and from house to house. They met in the temple in a large group. That's part of what we do. And it's much easier to be enthusiastic about what we're doing when there's a lot of people. You know, some of you have been to a soccer game or a basketball game, and there's, you know, six parents in the stands, you know. Well, it's a sixth grade game, so I mean, you know, sometimes that happens. And then you go to a, a massive Packer game and it's full of crowds of people. It's a lot easier to be excited about what's happening when there's a crowd. And there's something about coming together that helps us catch enthusiasm. Large groups. But they also had community, they met in homes, they had close face to face relationships. And many, many churches have crowds, but no community. The purpose of church is not just Sunday morning worship. It's also day-to-day community. Relationships, finding a place to belong. And community can happen in a connect group, which we have. It can happen in a discipleship class, a youth group, a worship team, a community, wherever that happens. But God has called us to be in community, in relationship. What kind of church? Letter D, it was... It was respected. Verse 13 says, no one else dared to join them even though they were highly regarded by the people. It's kind of an interesting statement there. Christianity from the very beginning was regarded as a sect of Judaism. That's why the Roman government, by and large, didn't intervene in the church. This allowed the church, especially once the church moved outside of Jerusalem, to grow. And the Romans gave the Jews freedom of religion. So why were these people so respected. It, it says they were respected, they were revered. Why? They were authentic. We, last week we talked about authenticity being one of the most important parts of a church body. Authenticity, real people. They had integrity, and they cared for one another. It was obvious that they loved one another. There's no argument for love. There's no argument for love. When people love, our goal Our goal is not to gain respect. Our goal is to love one another, to love our community. And the reason the church gained so much traction in the early years is it demonstrated genuine love and concern, not just for each other, but for people. In fact, we find in the third century when the plague hit Rome, there was this awful plague that hit Rome, the bubonic plague, and it was Christians who cared for the sick and dying completely, to their own peril of getting sick and ill and dying themselves. That love and care in a tangible way demonstrated Christ's love. And that generated respect. Now, people today may disagree with our beliefs or practices, but let me tell you something, they can never take offense at genuine love, love. What kind of church? Letter E, growing, growing. Verse 14, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Constant, consistent growth. People were coming to believe in Jesus Christ. That was the norm, the pattern. And whether a church is 50 or 5,000, it ought to be adding people to the body. And the question is, as we're looking at that, are we growing? How do we grow? That's a question. We grow by biological growth. We have people who have babies, transfer growth, returning growth. Over 50% of Christians are unchurched. And this, this grew exceedingly over the COVID time. It, it's amazing how many Christians just kind of dropped out and they said, I'm not going to mess with that. Uh, it caused division and caused conflict and I'm not going to go. I'm just going to go home, watch it on TV and do that. And they've just forsaken. Many, many people that are Christians are, are on church. They're not connected. God wants them connected. Finally, what kind of church healing Says they were bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. These were physically sick, emotionally sick, psychologically sick, spiritually sick, demonized. When Jesus was on earth, he performed healing and deliverance through his physical presence, his physical body while here on earth. We talked about that, Jesus' presence on earth. And then he left, went to heaven. And now how is that supposed to happen? He sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in believers. Now his agency of healing was a group of people. His body, his new body, the church here on earth. We are that agency of healing. The church was a place of healing. People all around us broken, wounded, tormented by evil and evil spirits. God has called us to be a people of healing And deliverance. We can receive healing and deliverance. What kind of life? What kind of church? A supernatural worshiping community, respected, growing, and healing. And what kind of life did they have? What kind of life? It's interesting. We're going to go into a few more verses here of Acts five, starting with verse seventeen. Then the high priests and all the associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts and they had been, as they had been told, began teaching the people. This is a great story. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin The full assembly of the elders of Israel, they sent to the jail for the apostles. I love this part of the story. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard, and chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this? Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people at that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles, did not force them because they were feared the people would stone them. Then it talks about the conversation they had. It says, you're spreading this news all out that Jesus is alive and you're blaming us for his death. You have to understand the Pharisees, Israel was a small nation relatively, and the Pharisees viewed Jesus as an illegitimate son of Mary. Not sure who his father was. Now, we don't think, think about that, see that very often. If you go back to John 8, the eighth chapter, talks about this conversation between Jesus and, and the Pharisees' religious leaders. And they were questioning whether or not he was an illegitimate child or not. And of course, he said, God is my father, okay? But they said, this is a scandal, this guy from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And his teachings drove them mad because He condemned the religious and he forgave the sinners. You don't do that in that time. And after putting up with this nonsense for three years, these guys had dealt with this Jesus guy for three years. And they finally had gotten rid of him. They got the Romans to do their dirty work. They executed and crucified him. And then what happens? His followers come and they say he's alive. And then they're blaming them for the death. This is horrendous. So they put the messengers in prison, Peter and John. It just never worked. Okay? Why, did he put him, why did they put him in prison? To silence him. Well, that doesn't work. So God breaks them out of prison, tells them to proclaim Jesus again. Amazing what happened. This was better than the great escape or the Shawshank Redemption. It was great. <laughs> this was supernatural. A great escape. And now they were teaching publicly. And they were teaching what? What were they teaching? It says they were teaching the full message of this life. Very important to understand. What were they teaching? They were teaching the full message of this life. What was that? It was centered on, first of all, Jesus. Centered on Jesus. We sang that last song, Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's Jesus. The word life is used 36 times in the New Testament. And it's a synonym used for Jesus himself. John was one of the apostles who had been arrested and escaped from jail. And later he wrote in John 1, four, in him, Jesus was life. And that life was the light of men. John, 1 John 1.1-2, 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Jesus said I am the bread of life, I am the way the truth and the life. The center of this message that they were giving, center of this message of the church was not self-esteem. It wasn't material ease and prosperity, it wasn't self-expression, it wasn't social action. What kind of life was this? This was life it was Jesus himself. Jesus. And this life is not found in any religion, it's not found in any acts that we do or deeds. Only found in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus. What kind of life? Centered in Jesus. It's also an abundant life. John 10, 10, Jesus said, I came that you might have life, life abundant. Doesn't mean an easy life. Like the codfish. Relaxing and floating in that tank, fat, happy and lazy. Mashi. No, that's not what God allows for us. Abundant life means challenges, it means strength, it means energy, accomplishment, and movement. It's health and life. If anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 says, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, all things are new. Letter C had, has to do with obedience. This life is obedient. Verse 29 says, we must obey God rather than man. This is a big deal today. Bigger today than I've ever seen in my entire lifetime. We live in a country that was founded on Judeo-Christian ethics based on the Bible, the word of God. And make no mistake, no matter how hard people try to rewrite our history, a careful examination of our Constitution, Bill of Rights, original writings, and statements by our founding fathers presents an overwhelming case for the fact that America was founded on Christian principles and the word of God. The catchphrase, and I, I just about brought this, it's a, it's a little bit long video. Um, if you want it, let me know, I'll send it to you. It's a video about Christian nationalism and why uh, the, the catchphrase, the thing about labels, people can label you this, label you that. It's, it's labels for lazy people that don't bother to look at evidence or look at, the, at what's happening. And I've been labeled a Christian nationalist. You may have been too. Which means you believe that our country was founded on the Word of God, on the principles. That's what it does. It didn't allow the government to establish any one denomination or religion, but the values of Christianity permeated our laws from the very beginning. The question of obeying God rather than man was not the forefront of our thoughts for many years. We just assumed certain things. It's changed. So who do I obey, God or man? I don't know how many of you have caught this part in the news. This will, will not be on mainstream news, but there's, there's a, a gentleman named Steve Baker. How many of you know the Steve Baker, just the last two days? Steve Baker is a friend of my wife's. He, he traveled in one, one of the groups from Living Sound way back a number of years. So she knows him from many years ago. Steve Baker, yeah, became a reporter. He was a musician. He did a lot of different things. And he became a reporter. And he's working for The Blaze, which is, uh, which is um, Glenn Beck's organization. And Steve Baker, okay, and he went to the, as a reporter, he's a reporter, just like ABC News and CBS, all the reporters. And he was on site January 6th. And he followed the crowd. And you can actually see him. They have video showing him. He has a camera. It's dangerous. It's a camera. He has a camera and a notebook. And he's observing and writing notes, etc. Well, what he did, his motive and his whole mission is truth, finding truth. Okay? He's a born-again believer, great man of God. And he basically they said, You were there, and so we're gonna arrest you. Okay? If you don't know what's happening with the January 6th people, you've got to look it up, find out. Many people, innocent people. They accused him of, of misdemeanors. He was one of many. And the reason they did that is because he kept digging for the truth about what happened January 6th. And he found the truth of the, the kind of manufactured, the, the government's involvement in manufacturing this thing, uh, the cover up of all kinds of things. And he started publishing and putting this out. Well, when they started getting these messages from Steve Baker, and it was his reporting. they attacked him, they said, "We're going to arrest you." So they told him, they alerted him, that yesterday Friday, was it was a Friday, Friday, they were going to arrest him, and they wanted him to turn himself in in shorts and sandals. He was accused of four misdemeanors, okay more mis- when we get accused of a misdemeanor, we, sh- we show up and say. I, I did speed, I did this, you know, it's just—it's very minor. They wanted to handcuff him, put him in chains, and put him in an j- orange jumpsuit. Well, he kept his suit and tie on, which is <laughs> wise. But they did, they took him off. Here's a guy who's doing the job of reporting, not doing anything. And why are they against him? Because he's exposing the truth. And he's being persecuted, he's opposed. So they, they did. We saw a video of him being handcuffed and perp walked. They put him in leg chains and they did release him. And his interview afterward just talked about the fact that he exposed the truth. There are many, many people today that are involved in exposing truth. Christians, non-Christians, all kinds of people. But what you have there is opposition and we must as we stand and proclaim the truth, we must expect those kinds of things. Opposition, lots of things that happen if you expose the truth. We've taken stands on transgender. We've taken stands on marriage. We've had biblical marriage. We've taken stands on all of those things. You know what? You're going to get opposition. You're going to get opposition. What kind of life do we have? It had a price. What was the price? Verses 33 to 40. Basically, it talks about them being beaten because they went back down. What kind of price? You have opposition. And the price we pay to be a church to make a difference is opposition. And when you oppose any of the status quo, you're going, to pay, you're going to pay a It's going to be opposition. Now, the candidates here are walking into the lion's den. I'm not predicting anything, but we need to pray for them because they will face opposition. They're going to stand up and say, we do not want pornographic books and materials in our libraries for the kids. We're not going to put up with a transgender push saying, and you can choose whatever gender, 75 or 80 genders that... You can choose from. Say, no, it's obvious. Science is very obvious. There are two genders. They're going to receive opposition. And when you stand up for truth, no matter whether it's exposing the corruption of something happening within our government or something happening within our school board or county level to government, we have opposition. And it's time that we count the cost and stand up. We must stand up. We will not be passive. What happens? What is the opposition's strategy? They try to pick off or destroy leadership, literally. In Acts 5, the strategy was to neutralize and remove by arresting and imprisoning intimidation. It's it's amazing. The same tactics today, taking leadership out. If you can take the leader out, then everybody's going to fold. They tried fear. And Satan will try to defeat us in our minds and rob us of courage or faith. Fear is the opposite of faith. And we need to pray for those that are standing up for righteousness no matter what their role in our world. And pray for faith instead of fear. There's discouragement. Number two, where's God in all this? Is anything good happening? Are we wasting our time? And then there's criticism, criticism. You know, every baseball team needs a batter who always bats 400, can play every position, and never makes an error. But no one has ever figured out how to get him to lay down his hot dog and go out into the field. (laughs) Criticism, it is really easy to point fingers at people and criticism criticism kills it kills morale and spirit and if you read newspaper articles you read stuff online or look at any kind of mainstream media which I discourage you from doing you will have criticism and attacks all kinds of things constantly against people of righteousness who stand up for truth the fourth strategy is moral failure And we see moral failure that's at epidemic proportions today. We need to pray for our leaders because they're going to be tempted. They will be seduced. We read reports of intentional attempts to seduce key leaders so that they're rendered helpless and neutralized through blackmail. Dozens and dozens of government people have been neutralized for that. Then there's avoidance. Want to avoid. Run from responsibilities. Failure to confront issues. Leaders living in fear. Discouragement dealing with criticism. Avoiding making decisions. They don't want to make a decision. Remember our opponent, Satan, is our opposition. And if he can he will pick off or destroy leadership. We need to always pray for our leadership starting at the very top. All the way down to the local level secondly there's the attempt to divide and conquer opposition strategy is bring division into the church disagreements that affect unity unity is so important and i've seen this happen in the christian community with christian leaders trying to sow division it was it was so obvious during the pandemic and different things there were so many People are trying to sow division. And I said, you know what? Whatever your opinion, I'm not gonna let myself be divided by an opinion. Comes to politics, all those other types of things. Now, some things we have to hold to. We'd rather be divided by error than united by immorality. Unity is precious. There's the persecuting or seducing of the church, letter C. Back then it was persecution. Today, it's starting to move more to persecution. There's seduction, but there's persecution. Seduction implies a transfer of loyalty or love of our will, changing thinking, and it's, it's just very, very subtle. Slowly, we can shift our love for God to love for things and shift our stand for right and wrong, for open-minded tolerance. The big, the big word, the big concept today is tolerance. There are three sins that our culture will not accept. Three sins. Murder, rape, and intolerance of others' beliefs or lifestyles. Intolerance is right up there. You know, you can't have an opinion that reads you as intolerant. We talked last week about The battle over the inerrancy of scripture and the fact that it has happened gradually, a little bit at a time, slowly seduced into something that we no longer recognize as biblical Christianity. And Satan has been called the ultimate gradualist. If you throw a frog into hot boiling water, it'll immediately jump out. But if you put a frog in a cool water and slowly heat it up to boiling temperature, it will stay there. Until it's cooked to death. Gradualism, that's how the church has been seduced, slowly. The watershed issue was the inerrancy of scriptures. We're jumping around a little bit here. Francis Schaefer, we talked about this last week. Francis Schaefer said there was no doubt in his mind that those who believed that the Bible had some error and some truth could maintain a warm personal spiritual faith in Jesus during their lifetime. But he asked, what happens when the next generation tries to build on that foundation? And we've seen the result of that, where we've left that seduction first and compromise on inerrancy of scripture. And so we stand and we'll continue to stand on the infallibility and inerrancy of scripture and original autographs because we cannot do anything else. What kind of response is there? Very quickly. 41 and 42, we find that, said the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace. Day after day in the temple courts from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Rejoicing in suffering. People today are looking for a cause, something to believe in, something to give their life for. Our cause is just. Then we see there's persistence in mission. They never stop, never slow down. And we find ultimately that these apostles, these leaders, set the example of they needed to obey God rather than man. Obeying God rather than man. That is the call to the church today. That is our call in our involvement at work, in government, in school, in whatever it is. God has called us to obey God rather than men. We will get opposition, we're going to have persecution, we're going to have all kinds of things. I believe personally that the tide is turning and things are moving in the right direction. But in the meantime, realize we weren't the first. We're an extension of the first church. What they experienced, we will, or have experienced. And let me tell you something. The church of Jesus Christ ain't going nowhere. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have set up this church, you all the way back in the book of Acts. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would by your grace and strength, give us your Holy Spirit so that we can be the kind of church that you've created us to be. Give us courage, give us faith, And we give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.